She was a very capable lady. She was one of those ladies, I don't know, I, I, I am very jealous of them, who can cook up a meal for about 20 people at the drop of a hat. Have you ever come across somebody like that? If you knock the door, you're guaranteed to get a feed. My granny was like that. Whatever time of the day you came to her, you could get cheeseburgers or chicken and ham pie. She just seemed to miraculously produce it. Well, this lady was like that. She loved feeding people. She loved hosting people. She was very, very, very gifted. But this day, she wasn't in the best of moods. And that's happened to us all, isn't it? Sometimes we aren't in the best of moods, are we? And the door knocked, and he appeared with this bunch of men who were hungry, who weren't the best. I mean, Hyacinth's bouquet wouldn't invite these guys to a candlelit supper. But they knocked the door, they were looking for food, and they marched in. So she got the, the spuds on. She got the mints cooking. She got the kitchen going to feed all these hungry guys. But she was missing her helper. Where was her helper? She was doing this herself. She was feeding these guys, these ungrateful bunch. Where was her helper? She was serving them. She was blessing them. She needed help. And she went into the living room to find her helper. And there she was sitting down on the ground. While she was doing all the work. And so Martha, bless her, goes up into the face of Jesus and says these words to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? I mean, what a person to say those words to. Lord, don't you care? To Jesus, who's on the way to Calvary to give his life for her. There is a danger in serving the Lord. There's a danger in working for the Lord and giving yourself to his service that you throw yourself so much into the service, so much into the work that you find you actually forget about him. And Martha's intentions were right. I mean, the apostles needed fed. They were hungry lads. But Mary had chosen the better portion. She had sat down at the feet of Jesus and listened to his teaching and engaged in fellowship with him in his presence. Why did I start with that? Because all the way through the scripture, time and time again, you see the Lord's servants entering into his service with joyous and willing heart, willing to follow him because of his salvation, and slowly over time, drift creeps in. And they start drifting away from the Lord they love, the Lord they serve, and it becomes about the service. It becomes about the work. It becomes about getting things done, and they forget the very reason they're doing it in the first place. And so they become brittle. They become grumpy. They become ill-tempered because like Martha, they feel they're the only ones doing it. Remember Elijah's great scene in the, the mountain after he'd faced down all the prophets of Baal. He had this powerful miracle that God did through him. And what does Elijah do? He runs into the desert and says, I, only I am left. Jonah's the same. Jonah, as we looked at last week, was a prophet of the living God. He had prophesied successfully. We saw that in two kings where he prophesied that Jeroboam II would expand the borders of Israel. He had a track record. The Lord had used him. He was obviously rich and well off as well. He was able to afford a boat fare to Spain. I mean, I don't know if you're booking flights with Ryanair at the minute, but they're not cheap. Jonah could do that. He could fly British Airways first class. And he was a prophet of the Lord. And Jonah knew the scriptures, as we're about to see today in chapter 2. Chapter 2, this prayer that Jonah gives is a mishmash of Psalms. Jonah knew his Bible. 
Jonah, as I said last week, was no fool. He was foolish in his behavior, but he was no fool. He knew the living God. He knew the scriptures that said Israel should be a light unto the nations, that the light of Israel should go out forth from there and mercy would be shown even unto the Gentiles. He knew these scriptures. He served the Lord, but he forgot what God was like. He had drifted away from the Lord. The service had hardened him. The service had made him so caught up in himself that he forgot what he was all about. And so God, in his great mercy, this book is about God's compassion and his mercy in unlikely places to unlikely people. And God, in his rich mercy, and I love this about God, God appoints a fish to eat Jonah to get his attention. That's pretty drastic, isn't it? I loved reading the commentators in this this week. Some of the commentators, I mean, commentators, I don't know. They're a strange breed. I'm sorry if anyone in this church does Bible commentary, but one of the commentators, what has he said? This is an unusual place for a prayer to happen in the belly of a fish. (laughs) Some of these guys, anyway, anyway. But God wants to get Jonah's attention because God is going to have mercy on his disobedient prophet as well. Isn't that beautiful? And God here, Jonah, when he was thrown into the sea, last week we saw how Jonah ran away from the presence of, tried to run away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord pursued him, put a storm in the sea. We see how Jonah, the reluctant evangelist, actually triggers the conversion of the sailors on the boat. The sailors throw Jonah into the sea at his request because Jonah thinks that the Lord's going to take him. For a prophet to disobey the Lord and run away from his command, Jonah expects the Lord to, to take his life. So when he's thrown into the sea, Jonah thinks, that's it, it's all over. I don't have to be a missionary to Nineveh anymore, which is a pretty extreme way of avoiding being a missionary, isn't it? He would literally rather die than preach the gospel to the people of Nineveh. That's a hard heart, is it not? So he's thrown into the sea. And the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, Campbell Morgan in this passage, I believe this fish was real. I believe this is a real story. Campbell Morgan says of this that you know, so many people focus on the fish in this story that they forget the great God behind the fish. God is capable of creating a fish to swallow Jonah. God is capable of keeping Jonah alive in that fish. This is a God who made the heavens and the earth. Nothing is beyond his potential. So let's not get caught up about the fish. And it was a fish. We don't know if it's a whale. One of my commentary, one of the commentaries I was reading yesterday had this beautiful picture of Jonah on the beach and this whale in the background, you know, blowing out this, the, the water and the whale has a big smile on its face. I'm sure it did after eating Jonah, but anyway. It's a fish the Lord created to get Jonah's attention. And this is a severe mercy for Jonah. I mean, we romanticize probably a wee bit when we sing the songs and stuff way down in the middle of the ocean. But quite frankly, brothers and sisters, I could think of better places to spend three days and three nights than inside a fish. Pitt and Wayne, my previous charge, was an efficient port and the fish market down there used to stink. I mean, you could smell it if the wind blew up. I mean, I love fish. I love fish and chips. They're tasty, but I don't like the smell of rotten fish. Jonah here is in suffocating circumstances inside the belly of a fish. God had mercy on him, yes. But it was a severe mercy because Jonah had drifted so far away from his Lord that the Lord really had to get Jonah to get a grip of himself. That's the Northern Irish saying, do you ever hear that saying, to get a grip of yourself? My mom used to say it quite a lot to me in my teenage years. Don't think I ever did get a grip of myself, but Firstly, the three stages here that Jonah goes through for the Lord's severe mercy to him. Jonah needs to come to his senses. 
And we find this time and time again, don't we? We saw that in the prodigal son when we looked at it a few weeks back. When did the prodigal son come to himself? When he was his lowest ebb. And what does the text say? He came to himself and remembered his father's house. Some of us this morning have drifted so far from the Lord that we need to come back and remember him. And perhaps the storms and the billows and the circumstances in your life at the minute are the Lord's way of saying, come back to me, come back to me. Come and I will receive you with mercy. Come, come, don't forsake the living waters. You went after the cisterns, the broken cisterns, but come back to the source of life. Come back to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Come back to the very foundations of your faith. Come back to me. God did that to bring Jonah to himself so that Jonah would come to himself. Notice this is the first time that Jonah prays in the text. In chapter 1, he gets the call of God and instead of praying about it or arguing with the Lord like Abraham did. Remember Abraham? When God came down and said he was going to destroy the villages of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham wrestled with them and said, Oh Lord, but if there be some in that city, would you not save them? There was intercessory prayer. Jonah didn't do that. When he goes onto the boat and he goes for a sleep, and the waves rise up. The man of God is asleep while the pagans are calling out to their dead gods. It's ironic that the man who knows the living God is asleep while the ones who know the pagans are crying out. He doesn't pray then. When he's woken from his sleep and sees the wind and the waves and knows that he has caused it, he doesn't pray then. When the sailors cry out and say, right, Jonah, we're going to try and save your life, but it's not going well for us. We're sailing against the wind and the waves. Jonah says, throw me into the sea. To be honest with you, if somebody's about to throw me into the sea, I might start praying. Jonah doesn't do it then. And so God brings him to himself by appointing this severe mercy. I called out, verse 2 there, of the Lord out of my distress. I called out. And I love this here. This, this portion of Scripture is actually a mixture of Psalm 18 and Psalm 42. There's a lot of Psalms in here. But I love Psalm 18. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Psalm 18 a second, please. You will see how Jonah here cries out with prayers. If you're ever struggling to pray, brothers and sisters, use the Psalms. It was, you'd think Richard and I coordinated that today. We actually hadn't, but Psalm 46 is such a brilliant prayer, isn't it? When you're struggling, God, you're my refuge and strength present help in times of trouble. Look here at this psalm. Jonah, as he starts to come to himself, he starts to remember the psalms. He starts to remember the Lord's dealings with me. He goes back to fundamental basics. First one, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and fortress and deliverer in whom I take refuge. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. First four, the cords of death encompass me. The torments of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. I cried to the Lord for help and he heard me. Jump down to verse 13. Look at how the Lord responds. The Lord thunders riding in the winds of the waves and comes to help me. He utters his voice of hailstones and coals of fire. Verse 16, he sent from on high. He took me and drew me out of many waters. We were having a conversation the other day about people who speak different languages. And um, I can barely speak English, so it amazes me. To... But we had this conversation about people who speak different languages. And if you learn a language and you become proficient in it, you've got maybe, you could speak, I don't know, French and English. And what we were talking about was what happens in that moment of pressure? 
Say you're under real trials or, you know, somebody stands on your toe or somebody crashes into your car and you feel a surge of emotion. What language comes out? We had this interesting debate because is it the language of the heart? Is it the language that's native to you? Or what comes out? And here's hope for Jonah. Jonah is under intense pressure. Jonah has been living in rebellion. He's been running from God, but under pressure, the pressure of the smelly fish and the ocean, but also the pressure of realizing what a fool he's been. He feels all this on top of him. And as he's squeezed, and as the Lord graciously and gently squeezes him, what comes out of Jonah is faith in the living God. And that's why Jonah's no fool. He is foolish. But in his heart, in himself is trust in the God who loves him. Martin Luther commenting in this passage says, First God grants grace to the Spirit to cheer the heart. It is the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the Lord to mind. And when it comes to pass that the heart is reminded of the Lord, a new light flares up. Life again rises its head and the heart is emboldened to cry out to the one who hears. Jonah here is brought to himself, but God, by bringing him to himself and assessing his situation, squeezes him so that out of Jonah comes the knowledge that actually he does trust the Lord that the fundamental core of his being is the God in him working out his salvation. My friends, this morning, you may have run from the Lord. You may be trying to hide from God. You may be trying to hide from his presence. The Lord has put something in your heart to do and you do not want to do it. Perhaps you're putting yourself further away from him. Lord, like Moses, don't you love Moses? I love that scene where God appears to Moses and says, Moses, lead the people of Egypt or the people of um, Israel to freedom from Egypt. Moses, says, that's great, Lord, but send my sister. We have all done that, haven't we? Thank God for sisters. Perhaps you're trying to hide from the Lord. Oh, Lord, you can't see me. I, I, I'm too small. I, I'm trying to make myself insignificant in your sight. The Lord sees you. He knows the hairs of your head. Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. If I make my, my, my bed in the heavens, you're there. If I descend to Sheol like Jonah, notice that Jonah is consistently going down in this story, right down to the roots of the mountain. That's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? I have climbed Ben Nevis. I know you wouldn't believe it to look at me. And that was hard going. And apparently the height of the mountain is reflected in the depth of the mountain. He's way down as low as he can go. Even if I descend to Sheol, you are there. If I make my bed in the furthest reaches of the ocean, if I go as far as I can go, you are there. God perhaps is bringing you back to himself this morning. Stop running from him. Stop hiding from him. Return to him. Cry out in your love to him. Out of the belly of Sheol, he cried out. Verse three, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. All distractions removed. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, we need to sit down before the Lord our God in prayer and through his word and face him. Him who loved us. Him who gave himself for us. Him who pursues us. Him who comes after us with his rich mercy. Him who is our delight to serve, but in serving him first from a place of love. Simon Peter had this conversation as well, did he not? 
I love John 21. I think if we preach the rate we're preaching, we should get to it in 2025 or something like that. But we'll get there. John 21. Simon Peter has betrayed him. The big tough fisherman's been scared by a servant girl. He runs off. Jesus comes back from the dead alive forevermore and he comes to Peter. And I love that scene on the beach. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happens around the waters here with the Lord, doesn't there? They're having breakfast in the beach. The Lord feeds them first. They're tired, they're hungry. And then Jesus looks at them and says, Simon Peter, come with me a while. And they start walking away. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I've read my Psalms today. You're omniscient. Okay. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Notice love before service. Then the third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's that third point where Peter's cut to the quick. And people say, and you've heard me preach this before, people say it's because he betrayed him three times. Yes, that's possibly true. But I think that's Jesus in that moment with Peter, also getting Peter to stop talking a load of nonsense. To stop putting up a front to stop putting up the shields, to stop running from the Lord and actually face to face with him and say, Simon, son of John, what's in your heart? Do you love me? Jesus knows the answer. It's not for Jesus' benefit. It's for Peter's benefit. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Good, because in 40 years from now, you're going to be martyred for me. And what's going to help you run the race? What's going to help keep you going? Is it a stiff upper lip? Well, I'm Peter, you know, I'm a good chap. No. Is it sheer pluck and determination? No. Is it energy? Is it caffeine? Thank you, Lord, for caffeine. No. The one thing that will keep him going, as John Wesley says, that draws men through fire and water is love to Jesus Christ. Jonah, you're in the whale, you're in a fish, it away down in the middle of the ocean. And as the Lord squeezes your heart, he's testing you to show you what's in there. And what is in there is love to the Lord. Good. Verse 4. The turning point here is Jonah starts to go down. He starts then to turn and go up. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. So Jonah has been brought to himself. He's been brought back to the Lord. But also now he's been brought back into the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Verse 4. I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. That's faith. The temple's in Jerusalem. Jonah's way down in the middle of the ocean. He will look upon the temple again. He trusts the Lord. He sees the Lord's deliverance in this. He knows that God can raise the dead. Apparently, John Knox. Have you heard of John Knox? You all heard of John Knox, the fiery fiery reformer of Scotland. John Knox was called to the ministry in St. Andrew's Castle. And if you're ever in St. Andrew's in the town, if you're out in the sea, there's very distinct things. There's the tower of the cathedral. I mean, talk about having a bad day. These guys built this cathedral twice and it got struck by lightning twice and has now just been left in ruins since. But there's this big tower, there's the castle, and there's the church in the middle of the town, Martyrs, where John Knox preached. So he got the call to ministry there, he preached in the castle, and then the French came along and took him captive. And for two years he was a galley slave and a boat, rowing backwards and forwards between France and Scotland, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, whipped, beaten, lashed. John Knox one day was in St. Andrew's Bay as a slave. And he looked up and he saw the tower of the church he was called to the ministry in. 
And Knox said to one of his fellow passengers, one day I shall preach in that church again. The Lord will get me there. Three years later he did when he returned to Scotland. Your circumstances now may look bleak. You may be worried about the future. There may be things going on in your life that nobody else knows about. You may be thinking, how am I going to get out of this? As you come before the Lord, as he tests your heart and you know you've got a living faith in him, grow and strengthen the faith in the God who brings back those from the dead. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I was pursed almost on the death and yet I had hope because the Lord raises the dead. With man, it's impossible. But with God, oh, come on, you can answer me back. You're very quiet today. He's all right. <laughs> all things are possible. Jonah was brought to himself in a severe mercy. He was brought back to the Lord. Now he's brought back into the presence of the Lord here. There's resurrection in this verse. Verse 6, as the mountains wrapped down as he went down to the place with the bars closer, the Lord brings him up from the pit. When his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. The prayer came to him, and he was given again the hope of steadfast love. First eight here is a wee bit funny. Jonah has been brought back to himself to assess himself fully in the light of God's presence. He's been brought back to the Lord and now the Lord's presence is coming upon him, that presence of joy, that presence of strength. But verse 8, Jonah hasn't changed too much. Verse 8's a wonderful verse and it's a true verse, but it's also Jonah's backhanded way of saying, well, Lord, you've saved me. But don't forget them heathens in the boat. Those who pay regard to vain idols, the sailors, the Ninevans. Jonah's not quite finished. He's a work in progress yet. And we'll see that in chapter 4 as Jonah has a wee sort of incident. They pay revealing idols. So there's a work to be done here. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord is always working on us. He's always transforming us. If we are in Christ, if we're saved and redeemed, if we have repented and trust in Christ for our salvation, if the Holy Spirit has come within us, then he is always working on us. He's always transforming us. He's bringing us into the likeness of Christ day by day from one degree of glory to another. We're all works in progress. So be patient with each other. Be considerate of each other. Be encouraging each other in love and deed. Spur each other on. If somebody says something daft, don't hit them over the head with a stick. Bless them, love them, pray for them. Jonah was a work in progress and still God's mercy was upon him. If you're struggling in your Christ likeness, if you're trying to follow the Lord, sometimes to be still and know that he is God and to read his word and receive from his spirit works a work of grace that is more powerful than all our striving. Was it Ruth Graham? Ruth Graham has her, the wife of Billy Graham has in her tombstone. It's this really long word. Well, I can't remember its initials, but basically it says, what is it? Sorry, love. <laughs> Malin loves it when I do this, when I forget something and look to her. Reconstruction finished. That's it. Thank you for your patience. Reconstruction finished. Thank you for your patience. Isn't that amazing? Thank you, love. <laughs> Reconstruction finished. Thank you for your patience. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that spirit are on the love and deeds. We will have Jonas in our midst who are grumpy and get upset when the Lord takes his plant away. 
We will have times in our life where we struggle with other brothers and sisters. What do we do in those situations? We remember that God's mercy was rich to us and we show it to others. We show it to others. We encourage them on. We do not despair because the same Lord who raised our sinful souls from the dead is also raising theirs from the dead and is at work within them. And we do preach the good news. How many people in the city of Lincoln are putting their hope in vain idols, in things that will not save nor satisfy? How many folk are putting their hope in money, in family, in career, in success, in social media? Oh, brothers and sisters, those aren't bad things, but when we make them the center of our focus and attention, when we place in them the things that only God deserves, they become idols. And by doing that, they cannot trust the Lord. And so they forsake the steadfast love of a God who loves them, who made them, who has offered them salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us have mercy with each other, but let us have mercy on the city around us as well. Let us not be like Jonah and run from Nineveh. Let us run into it with the mercy of God. Verse nine, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. I will, what I avowed, I will pay. Jonah does trust. He does believe in the Lord and he's realized now that he can't get away from him and so he must do this mission. And so the salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, Jonah, it does. Have you ever said something that sounded really profound and you wonder where it came from? I wish I had those moments. Like sometimes I'm talking to someone and I say something no good, but I've Or have you ever said something that's caught you out? Have you ever said something you've realized Absolutely right here. His mistake and Israel's mistake salvation belonged to them and that only they were worthy of salvation and they would keep the salvation and they would hold on to it and they would give it to who they liked. It was great giving salvation to Ruth because Ruth came from Moab and she came to Israel. So that's okay. She was a foreigner, but that's fine. She came to us. But as Jonah truth here that he will later come to regret but it is so true for us it's a delight salvation doesn't belong to a church it doesn't belong to a person or a denomination salvation belongs to the lord because it's his gift to give to whoever calls upon him isn't that amazing so if you're here today and you think the lord doesn't care about me churches have rejected me people have turned God will not. Salvation is his gift to give to you this morning. Whosoever believes in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, will not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a big word, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you said today, whosoever wants to come to my house for lunch, <laughs> whosoever believes in him, whosoever. The hardened atheist university professor who has turned hundreds away from the face, whosoever, if he turns to Christ, will be saved. The militant one who's pushing all these different things and fighting against the church and running down Christians, whosoever. God delights to save unlikely people in unlikely places and unlikely times, does he not? Because salvation belongs to him, not to the church. It is our ministry to proclaim that salvation to everyone. We are stewards of that salvation. It's not up to us to determine who gets it. The Lord does that. We proclaim the gospel faithfully. His Holy Spirit falls and gives the salvation. Verse 10. 
I did have a laugh. I, can't, I don't know if I wrote it down for you. Yes. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out in the dry land. This is what one of the commentators said. A rather ignoble way of exiting the fish. <laughs> and indeed it was. Jonah here is brought to himself. In his service of the Lord, he had forgotten fundamental facts about the Lord who had had compassion and salvation in him. And as he became more about service and drifted from the Lord who is his source and strength, he became hard. He became, he became brittle. So God in his severe mercy brought Jonah back to firstly himself to realize who Jonah was in the presence of a living God. He brought him to the presence of God face to face with God himself to do business with him in the depth of the ocean so that Jonah could be sorted out. Jonah is squeezed and in his heart he does respond by faith to the Lord like Simon Peter, like Mary. He reorientates himself. He learns truth about God, though he fails to apply them fully, and we'll see that over the next two weeks. But nonetheless, he learns that salvation belongs to the Lord, and he vows to serve the Lord again, and so he ignobly exits the fish. Brothers and sisters, this morning, from God, stop. Stop. It may be because of fear. It may be because God has put a finger in something in your life, and you don't want him to do that, but he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. When he has his mercy upon us, it transforms us for our good. For our good. I love that scene. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Or saw the films? They're great wee books, aren't they? Written by a Northern Irishman from Belfast as well, C.S. Lewis. We're not all bad. I love that scene where they go to meet Aslan for the first time. Aslan representing God. And the wee girl says, I, I didn't realize he was a lion. I mean, is he safe? They respond by saying, no, but he is good. He is good. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, yes, but he is good. He is merciful to all who are brokenhearted and bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. He will restore. So stop running from him. Surrender to him. Stop kicking against the goads. Friends, if we're here in the church this morning and we're tired and we're weary and we're, we're, we know salvation belongs to the Lord, but we just need some strength, also pause and be still in his presence. For they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and rise up on wings like eagles. A friend, if you're here and you do not know the living Christ, please come and talk to me or anyone in this congregation about how to know him because salvation is his gift to you through Jesus Christ if you will repent and believe in him. One of my prayers is that we will soon see this baptismal tank open as we see folk baptized, signifying the change of heart that Jesus Christ gives in his gift of salvation. And so we stand on the beach with Jonah and we look to see what happens next week. Let us pray. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I am still before you and pour out my soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation 
and my God. Deep calls out to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have gone over me by day. However, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Father, I pray the words that have been shared today that were not helpful would fall to the wayside, but what came from you would register with our hearts. We love you, Lord. We thank you that we are saved first and foremost by your amazing grace. We did not earn it. We could bring nothing to that equation but our sin and rebellion and yet by faith in your sacrifice on the cross and your resurrection from the dead, you have saved those who trust in you. And we thank you that it is by that faith and that grace that we are continually kept and saved, not by our work. So I pray this morning, if in serving you, Lord, and starting out with the best intentions, we have drifted from that core fact. If, like Simon Peter, we've got caught up and we need to come again to you and say, yes, Lord, actually, I love you. You would help us to do that. So as we return to serving you and loving others, it's driven not by performance or by duty, but a delightful love and a loving God. If we're running from you this morning, O oh Lord, help us to see the folly of that. Where can we go that you're not there before us or with us? If we're afraid of the operation of the Holy Spirit who comes, help us remember that he too, like the Father, like the Son, is gentle in his love and steadfast in his promises. Help us to deal with those things, Lord, that you're bringing to attention. Help us to take the first step if forgiveness needs to be issued. If love needs to be shown. If the gospel needs to be shared as it always does. We leave these situations in your gentle care, O oh Lord. And lastly, if there is again any here who do not know you. This morning now in their hearts, may you by the gift of salvation through the Holy Spirit help them to say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins from trying to put my hope in vain idols and anything else but in the Lord who can save me. May you help them to take that step of profession. Whosoever believes in his heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confesses with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, salvation is theirs. And we thank you, Lord, for being with us. And we pray now as we sing our closing hymn that we'll be remembered of the truth that before the throne of God above, we do have a great high priest whose name is love. Help us to lift him up as we part in Jesus' name. Amen.